Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is Primetime Politics, the Vote 2019 edition. Day six of the election campaign. Maxime Bernier will be in the televised debates after all. Elizabeth May joins me to talk about her platform launch today. The Liberals and Conservatives duel over promises for families and crunching the numbers on Canadian voters. But let's begin with the daily campaign primer. And let's go to work. Thanks. It was a good day for Maxime Bernier. The official debates commission has decided the People's Party of Canada leader will participate after all in the two official televised leaders' debates in October. The debates commissioner, David Johnson, became satisfied that Bernier's party has a legitimate chance at winning more than one seat. Here's how Max Bernier responded. Canadians will uh, be able to see all the options, all the options before voting the 21st of October. And it is important. We are in a democracy here. And I was waiting for that. I was waiting for that decision. And I must say to Mr. Johnston that uh, he took the right decision. Wonderful platform. Thank you so much. Green Party leader Elizabeth May launched her platform today in Toronto. It includes a 20-step action plan to fight climate change, including eliminating billions of dollars annually in federal subsidies to the fossil fuels industry in year one of a green government. The platform also includes consumer protection measures and a hike in corporate taxes, universal pharmacare, free university and college tuition, and affordable housing. The platform costs will be unveiled later this week after Parliament's budget officer has finished crunching the green numbers. And May had this message for voters. If every Canadian who has the right to vote gets out and votes, and they follow one piece of simple advice, vote for what you want. Vote for what you want and you will get a government and a parliament that requires that we do what Canadians want us to do, work together. NDP leader Jagmeet Singh campaigned in Quebec and announced the former Quebec leader of the Green Party, Eric Ferland, will be the NDP candidate in Longueuil-Saint-Hubert. Ferland explained his reason for switching. They've got a really core end plant. It, 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 it fits perfectly with each other, so... To me, it was obvious to to make the change to the NDPs. Switching sides is a bit of a theme in this riding. The Green candidate is former NDP MP Pierre Nantel. The Liberal candidate is a former Parti Québécois cabinet minister. Fetelin has supported Quebec sovereignty in the past. Singh says he's okay with that. And he's also answering questions that he's being soft in his opposition to Quebec's Bill 21, banning religious symbols worn by public servants. Where I'm putting my energy is where we can work together. We know that we can work together on the environment to tackle climate crisis. We can work together on investing in health care. People are worried about the cost of medication. We can tackle that together. And people are worried about housing. We can do that together as well. With a federal partner willing to invest, we can build more affordable housing, we can invest in health care, and we can tackle the climate crisis. <laughs> At a campaign stop in Waterloo, Justin Trudeau promised a re-elected Liberal government would nearly double its spending on childcare. The additional funding of $535 million a year would create as many as 250,000 more spaces for elementary school children 
under the age of 10 in before and after school programs. The money would be used to cut the fees working parents pay for the programs by 10%. The Liberals say that would save the average family of four some $800 a year. The program requires the support of the provinces, and Justin Trudeau took direct aim at Ontario Premier Doug Ford. Uh, people like Doug Ford, who say they are for the people, actually end up delivering cuts to public education, cuts to health care, cuts to the services that so many Canadians rely on. That's why we recognize that it would be very problematic for an awful lot of families right across the country, particularly here in Ontario today, uh, to have a federal government that aligns itself with the same kind of thinking that the Conservative Premier in Ontario is putting forward. Conservative leader Andrew Scheer campaigned today in British Columbia. At a stop in Kelowna, he promised to bring back two more tax credits that Canadians received during the Harper era. A children's fitness tax credit of up to $1,000 per child and up to $500 per child for arts and educational activities. Scheer promised a costed platform eventually, but did hint at where he'll find the money. One thing is clear, we will lower the cost of living, put more money back in the pockets of Canadians, while bringing us back to balanced budgets over a responsible period of time and maintaining increases in funding for essential services like health care and education. And that's the kind of day it's been, day six of the election campaign. Well, let's bring in the leader of Canada's Green Party now. Elizabeth May joins us from Toronto. Uh, Ms. May, good to see you again. Great to see you, Peter, lots, virtually. <laughs> lot, lots of pieces to this platform announcement today. Uh, lots of areas covered. Uh, what are the key uh, platform areas you think that Canadians ought to know about before they make a choice at the ballot box? I think they should look at our whole platform. It was interesting that you said there were a lot of pieces to this platform. Our metaphor for the platform is that families gather around a table, and if you've got a jigsaw puzzle, you just took it out of the box, and all the pieces are in front of you, you know you can build the whole puzzle. But if you don't have the top of the box, that picture on the top of the box, you can't do anything with all the puzzle pieces for much longer. So our metaphor is this platform is the top of the box. This is the vision for Canada in 2030. Now, if you're concerned about affordable housing, your solutions are here. If you're worried about the rising cost of drugs, your solutions are here in universal pharmacare. If you're a student dealing with the uh, you know, crushing student debt, we abolish tuition and significantly invest in our post-secondary institutions. We also bring in low-income dental coverage and child care. But if you're someone who's worried about what's going to happen to the economy, we have major investments, which are really needed, because our economy has been pretty flat in terms of investment for quite a while. Well, we see this as an opportunity, combined with the required action for climate change, to really take on a significant level of investment to transform our economy mm -hmm. to one that's post-carbon. Clearly throughout the platform is a strong commitment to Indigenous justice and reconciliation. There are a lot of elements of this. And of course, I think Canadians are really sick of wondering if their government is ethical. So we have some democratic reform pieces that are important, fair voting, and bringing in a new way that we should all work better together at different orders of government through a council of Canadian governments that brings a seat okay. to the table for Indigenous leadership and municipal order of government. Oh, well, it's, it's very comprehensive. Yeah, I, no, it is. I mean, I want to drill down on some of these things. Okay. Let's move right to the, the, the funding piece, the cost piece, yeah. though, I mean, because that's not there. Uh, you don't have a cost yet on this platform. When yes. will you have one? Well, very soon. It, our full budget was submitted in June to the uh, Parliamentary Budget Office, and I can't tell you how impressed and grateful I am for their top-notch expert work. 
Um, they've had, you know, we had, of course, intended to have the budget and the platform released on the same day. We think the budget numbers and the work of the Parliamentary Budget Office in reviewing all of our numbers will be completed within a week, and then we'll be releasing the budget. I wasn't comfortable releasing them the, on different days, but with a matter of a couple of days, I think we're fine, because we, the, the work that's being done to fully cost all these planks is, is, is substantial okay. so, work, so, and, and it's, it will be available very soon. Okay, so we'll get a costing, and, and then we'll have, a, I guess, a better idea of how how much money you're talking about. And, th well, and then the question... Well, then I the can't tell you, though, Peter, that we intend to balance the budget on the same time frame as the Conservatives. So five years. So we're not, we're not nervous about what our platform costs because we were identifying massive new sources of revenue, mm -hmm. places that we've let yeah, well, that, uh, that's go where, untapped. Th that's where I want to go. So once, yeah. once we see the costing, then we get an idea, okay, uh, then the next question becomes how do you pay for it? What, what, right. what, what should Canadians expect to see done differently if there's a green government when it comes to managing national finances? Well, start with the fact we haven't had a tax commission to examine whether our taxes are applied fairly since the 1960s. So we do want to bring in a tax commission. Our, as any accountant can tell you, boy, it gets hard to, and any Canadian, the Income Tax Act is increasingly larded with different deductions and boutique tax cuts and so on. So we do want to have a fair tax commission to examine where taxes are falling. But we won't increase the burden of taxes on middle income or average Canadians at all. For the super wealthy, they will find that some loopholes are closed. For instance, the stock options loophole, uh, the one that allows for people to have write-offs for corporate meals and entertainment. That's quite a lot of money. But we're also going to apply a 0.2% financial transaction tax. We're going to increase the tax on commercial banks and larger corporations to 21%. Right, we're right, going to go right, after the offshore 50, money. From 15 to 21%. That's and, right. And that's going to have some in the business community. What will you do with small businesses? They're going to look at the corporate... They stay... This, we're not... We're not going to increase large. The small businesses are the backbone of this country. We'd like to be known as the party for small business. So small businesses, credit unions, et cetera, aren't, don't see any increased taxes. Uh, but we are serious about needing revenue for the challenges of the 21st century. And we have found a number of places. And another one I should mention is these firms that are multinational that take billions of dollars of profits out of Canada, but essentially don't pay taxes. So that's the e-commerce companies, the Amazon, Google, uh, Netflix, those, those corporations, Airbnbs, they're not benign. Uh, there are a lot of issues with them, including privacy concerns. We'll deal with, a, with that tomorrow with a deeper mm. uh, press conference looking at privacy issues and how political parties should be under the rubric of our privacy protection you, in Canada. You can, hear the corporate, you can hear corporate Canada listening to this and saying, wait a minute, you know, we've been working with the regimen of, of consistently dropping corporate taxes to make us more competitive. There goes the competition edge Canada it might have. That's what they'll say. Yeah, but look at our productivity index. It hasn't improved at all. Uh, when I mean, and the late Jim Flaherty, whom I just a, a wonderful human being, so but but he did say that these corporate tax cuts were to remember how they framed it, the job creators. These guys haven't created jobs. They're gobbling up the use of artificial intelligence to lay people off. They're getting bigger profits, but they're sitting on piles of cash that they're hoarding. What the you know, former president of the Bank of Canada, Mark Carney, dubbed the dead money because they're awash in cash. They're not reinvesting it. They're not creating the jobs. So we'll have to take it, take a higher level of taxation from them in order to do the investment. They've proven over the last number of years that they're not investing in our economy. Their investment lines are, are relatively flat, 
Uh, we're growth in the GDP is about you know one and a half percent year on year, but that's mostly in the social and rather in the service sector. We need to actually invest in our large energy infrastructure needs, which are for a renewable energy-driven electricity grid that reaches from coast to coast to oh, coast. Oh. So well, our programs are very sensible. They'll be good for the economy. And some of the large transnationals haven't been paying their fair share for some time, and they 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 probably won't like our budget, but Canadians will. Okay, uh, let, let me, we have another, if I can frame it this way, another sort of skirmish with the NDP, this time in Quebec. Uh, the writing of uh, uh, Longueuil Saint-Hubert, the former Quebec leader, uh, the provincial leader of the Greens there, Eric Ferland, is now running for the NDP against the former NDP candidate, MP for the area, uh, Pierre Nantel, you know, that's running for the Greens. And, and I guess this kind of kind of candidate trade, I think, seems to fuel a narrative that the, the, the Greens and the NDP might be interchangeable here. Uh, what would you say if that's a narrative that's developing? Well, I don't know Mr. Ferland. Uh, he was a member of the Green Party some 25 years ago, but I think he's probably a good catch for the NDP. The reality is I'm not competing with the NDP and our Green candidates aren't. I mean, it happens that Pierre Nantel, who's now a Green candidate in saint langlois Hubert, who is, after all, of course, uh, an incumbent MP. He was recre recruited to federal politics by Jack Layton. He served in Parliament for eight years. He's someone I've worked with for eight years, and I, I think he's so impressive, and he's very committed to climate action. But I have a ca our candidate, David Murner, in Esquimalt Saanich Souk, in 2015 ran for the Liberals. So we're getting candidates, and we're getting re people joining the Greens who have always voted conservative, and now they've decided they're voting green, or they used to vote NDP, and now they're voting green. Uh, and a lot of former liberals who are completely disillusioned with what's happened since the liberals formed government in 2015 and broke a litany of promises. So it's not as though Greens are somehow poaching from an NDP pool. People of other parties from right across the spectrum are joining the Green Party and signing up to be candidates. And we welcome them with open arms, because we, we do want to form consensus and work across party lines. And that appeals to a lot of people. Okay, let, let's finish on this. The, and this is the, you had some more questions about it today on, on the abortion issue and, and vetting of candidates. And I know you're revetting some of the candidates, and that includes a Mr. Verkuterin uh, in, I think it's Leamington, Kent. Uh, mm -hmm. You wanted to have another look at uh, his background because of some of his past yeah. uh, supposed postings around, uh, around anti-abortion. So uh, where are you with that? Is he still a green candidate or is he going to be I removed? Need, I, at this point, he is still a green candidate. We're clarifying a number of things with him. I would like to speak to him personally. The thing we ask candidates in there, the vetting process is extensive. And what we ask candidates in the forum is, is there anything about Green Party policy with which you disagree? And they identify that for us. He didn't identify any disagreement about abortion rights. And when contacted, he said, no, I support the party platform that women have a right to a safe and legal abortion. So we're still discussing it with him. I want to talk to him personally. Uh, I don't, you know, this, the news cycle moves so fast. But we have to remember, these are real, live human beings. And they need time to 
but I need time to talk to them. I don't like discarding someone who is committed to green values because there's a sort of a media storm. I think we ought to be more careful and considerate with fellow human do, beings do, 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 you, do you share the, the view of Andrew Scheer? Andrew Scheer is now saying that, look, if someone said something that's inappropriate in the past, now that's a little different than disagreeing with party policy, but yeah. if someone says something in the past, and is an apology good enough? And they say, look, that's, that was 10 years ago, six years ago, four years yeah. ago, I've changed now. Let's see. It depends on the issue, Peter. Quite honestly, if someone was at ever at any point in their life a Holocaust denier, no, <laughs> there's no room for anybody. Those thoughts, you can't you can't say, oh, I, I've changed my mind. It depends on the extremity of the view. If there's a, a reasonably held view and they've now changed their mind, and it's some period of time, but it was a reasonable view to start with. It's something that you can say, okay, a reasonable person can change their mind and recognize that we must have access to safe legal abortion. Otherwise, women are going to die. Right. This but is a clear position. And we won't compromise on that. But if someone's been in the past, you know, it, it, deeply into conspiracy theories about 9-11, sorry, eh, we're not your party. So it depends, uh, I, I'd have to say, and okay. on the sincerity of the candidate and how we assess them as individuals. Elizabeth May, good to catch up with you on the campaign trail. And uh, we'll talk again, I'm sure. Take care. Thank you so much, Peter. So the parties are talking a lot today about what's best for families when it comes to child care, tax cuts and more. Let's debate what's on offer with three candidates. Mona Forte is the Liberal candidate for re-election in the riding of Ottawa-Vanier. Angela McEwen is the NDP candidate in Ottawa-West Nepean. And Karen Vecchio is the Conservative candidate for re-election in Elgin, Middlesex, London. Good to see you all. Thanks Thank for being here. Much. Karen Vecchio, let me start with you if I can. Uh, your leader, Andrew Scheer, today has, has gone back to the last Conservative government to, be, to reintroduce these tax credits for families uh, that the Liberals cancelled. But... Uh, let me start there. Why is he going back to the, the previous programs of the Conservative government that the Liberals had cancelled? Well, these are policies and these are programs that really impacted Canadian families. And when the Liberal government took it away, we actually had a lot of feedback from constituents, from Canadians, saying this is something that actually helped our families. So we are, have put forward a $1,000 fitness tax credit that's looking for activities under the fitness and sports, and those are refundable tax credits as well as a $500 tax credit for the arts and learning. And so those are both non -ref both refundable tax credits. So at the end of the day, there will be more money in the pockets of many parents or, or grandparents who are helping out with some of these costs. Okay. Um, the, the fiscal situation has changed since the Conservatives were in office, obviously. So one of the questions people have is for all these tax cuts and tax credits that the Conservatives are rolling out, how are you going to pay for them? You know, some of the things is it's a lot to do with spending. One thing is we talk a lot about balancing the budget and what we want to see in the future, but it's about all the unnecessary spending. So at the end of the day, we want families to be able to make those choices, whether it's childcare, whether it's the sports that they're taking part in. But we want to make sure that families have those choices with the fitness tax credit, all of those things at the end of the day, that will help families. But then getting rid of the carbon tax, which has a huge impact on seniors, our, our young families, our businesses and manufacturing, those are th something that we're rolling back as well. And we're also putting on a GST tax credit to help, all, or the GST will be removed from home heating bills to make sure that once again, more money in the back in the pockets of families. All right, Mona Forte, your leader today announced uh, another half a billion dollars a year, uh, more in funding for before and after school programs for children under the age of 10. Um, 
Now, there are governments, provincial governments in this country that are relatively hostile to, to the federal government. I'm talking about Ontario, Manitoba, New Brunswick, and Alberta. Um, they may stand in the way of these programs. So how will you help provinces roll these programs out in the face of that kind of resistance from provincial governments? Well, first, I want to say thank you for having us today. And uh, also, I'm very excited with what we're offering today to create those child spaces for after uh, school or before and after school care. Parents have told us, and even I as a parent, that they're juggling with responsibilities and child care and they need support to make sure that the, the kids are taken care of while they finish work. So this is an incentive built on the other incentives that we have proposed, the Canada Child Benefit, which helped uh, alleviate 300,000 children out of poverty. So we're building on those incentives to help families continue to grow the economy because that's what the idea is to help them support their working and what if what if doug ford says that's not happening in ontario we, well, don't, we don't want we... Your, your your money we don't we'll take care of child care in ontario well we are ready to continue to work in uh, with the provinces and the municipalities to support the uh, child care and invest in child care that's what families are asking at the door and these are incentives that will help angela what's the what's the ndp plan so the NDP plan is to invest right away a million or a billion dollars um, in building a national childcare plan. So uh, absolutely, what was announced today by the Liberals is fantastic. It's thoughtful. Um, it addresses the needs of parents who are shift workers and have unusual hours. Um, it's hard to find spaces in some provinces for kids. Uh, not all provinces in Ontario. There's a commitment to provide spots if kids need it. So. Um, so that, that is why we need a national system. We need to sit down with the provinces and hammer out something that works. The biggest need, though, is for under two for infant care because it's the most expensive. And um, the Liberals did promise in 2015 that they would implement that national child care program. Um, they haven't put the money or the resources towards Prime Minister doing suggested that. today this is part of a step that will eventually get there, but we're not there yet. Well, they've been promising right. it since 1993. Uh, so. Karen, <laughs> let, me, let, me, let me go back to you. Um, we hear about the urgent need for child care spaces. What, what's the role of government in that? If you, I mean, it's one thing for families to get money from, from a government or tax cuts, tax rebates, credits. But how do you, how do you find the spaces? If, if there's no money to create spaces, how do you get around that? Well, you know, we have, if you look across Canada, there are there are different needs across this country, whether it is the cost of making sure we have the proper staffing or whether we're looking at the rural or urban split. That's why we are very supportive of having options for families, making sure that families have that choice, whether it is something like a regular uh somebody going to a house where an EA will take care of them, or whether it's in more of a school-like setting. There's a lot of varieties, but at the same time, families need to be able to make that choice. We know that there is a lot of need for this, but we need to make sure it's not a cookie-cutter approach because the needs that you'll find in Langley, BC are very different than what we'll find in St. John's. Uh, so we have to be very aware of that. And, and for the federal government, we have to make sure that they're actually working with the provinces. And that's something that we have not seen work out well for the last four years. So cookie-cutter approach. So no. that's a bit of a straw man. How so? But well, there's, if you want to go ahead. No, hang on, Karen, we'll come back to you. What we have right now is, is provinces have put in place um, targeted spots um, 
you have spots for Francophone kids, you have spots for uh, First Nations, Métis, and Inuit kids. We have spots for kids that have special needs. So we don't have a cookie cutter approach. No one's proposing a cookie cutter approach. We are proposing flexibility, but what we need, the gap, where the gap is right now, is in terms of spaces and in terms of the workforce development program to, to have more workers who are qualified and to be able to pay them sufficiently. So, so one, that's what we hear from everyone. Um, one incentive uh, that I wanted to share also that was announced today is we're going to increase 25 million skills training to have educators because if we when we create those spaces we'll need to make sure that we have the proper training and educators on site. So this is a really holistic program that will work with the province create those 250,000 spaces in the next uh, few years and help families juggle between the fact that they need that after, before and after school uh, support. Karen, weigh in on that because the, really the conversation is about the role of government here and does, is the government required to build the kind of structure that Angela and Mona just talked about? How does that structure get built if the government's not involved in some way in delivering childcare services? Well, I think there's a couple ways of looking at this. First of all, we've talked about child care spaces before, and we know the liberal record that goes back to 1993, where they said that there will be a national child care program. But we as a party really believe in parental choice. If there are spaces that need to be built, there will be the assistance that we can do through the municipalities, through the provinces. But we need to look at what what each region needs as well. And so, like I said, trying to come up with an idea, we need to make sure that, yes, there are people that will be working at nights. There'll be people working during uh, weekends and things like that. A lot of these programs that I've seen did not impact those families. I've done this for the last four years, going across the country, and I can tell you that the child care that people are expecting to get is not what this government is often offering, and that we have to really look at, as a mother of five, we really need to look at what is the flexibility for parents, and are they going to come out with a program that helps people through the government, but doesn't actually help the families, because a lot of these families are left out. They may work shift work, they may work different things like that, and you don't find that, especially in my setting of a rural part of Canada. What's the answer we to that? Could, well, we can work with provinces and see those realities that we have on the ground. One of the incentives that we're presenting today with childcare before and after school, we also mentioned that we will try to find ways through maybe community uh, centers or other uh, uh, sets to help with the families that work later or earlier. We understand that somebody doesn't work nine to five anymore. So we need to focus on their needs and that's the program we want to settle and to put uh, towards Canadians so that we can work with the provinces and the uh, parents. Angela, what's the answer to that question? Is there, is there any other way to create, can you have a de facto national child care plan that might be, uh, that doesn't involve oversight from a federal government or funding from a federal government that, that sort of directs standards? And, and still get to and still get <clears throat> still get to where you want to be, where you can. I mean, what we've seen where where it, where it happens almost, I guess, organically, and it's it's the same. It's the system everybody wants. Can that happen? No. So what the that's talking about laissez-faire economics, right? That's the market will solve the problem. But here we're talking about where women have provided this care, largely women unpaid and they've taken cost to their lifetime earnings because of that. So when you're trying to replace that unpaid labor with a market program, there's no way you're ever going to be able to do that, right? And we should flip this and stop thinking about this as a cost and think about it as an investment. You're investing in those children, you're investing in the women who can now go work in the labor force if that's what they choose. 
and you're investing in, in pay equity. And so what we've seen is if it's a public system, if, uh, if you get the quality, you get the flexibility. If it's a private system, they're just there for profit and they, they have no incentive to provide the flexibility that we're talking about right. that parents hey, Karen, so go ahead, yeah. weigh in there. What's, what's, what's the alternative what, to, uh, your two colleagues are talking the same language really, but what's yeah, the alternative? They're speaking, they're speaking the exact same language. Um, I, I see what they're coming out with is, is pretty much the exact same. Well, we have these programs for the last 25 years that people have talked about and it has not suited the families God, themselves. Had them. year ago. Been there. That's the problem. But we've talked about this since 1993, and we have not seen something. This is under the provincial jurisdiction, but ultimately, parents are part of this decision. And so if we're coming out with a program where we're saying, your children must go into this, we have to look at what's available to other families that may not want specifically that. A lot of families want to be home with their children, and that's why we put in these maternity benefits and parental benefits that are tax-free, helping families so that at the beginning of their lives, that parents can be involved as well. We have to look at this as a family thing. We talk a lot about women. I was the chair of Status of Women, so of course I'm extremely supportive. But we need to see what families look like. There are a lot of non-traditional families as well, where the man may be home or it's a same-sex couple. There's lots of different things that we need to look at. So we need right, to make but, but it. You, for you, ten but, years. But you can, you, can, yeah. you can build a system to uh, respond to all of those differences, can't you? It's not well, boutique I mean, tax cuts that I believe will help families uh, the way they are right now. I believe that uh, with a robust plan to grow the economy and help helping families take their, the, creating those jobs. We need to support them in the childcare, in affordable housing, in different means. And I believe that the Liberal plan is the one that we can continue to move on and help those families continue to build and grow our economy. Karen, back to you and then Angela to finish. Yeah. Go, go ahead, Karen. But in this context as well, the, the, the Conservatives had a plan that, that gave money to families and then it was replaced by the Canada Child Benefit. If the Conservatives get back in, what happens to the Canada Child Benefit? Does it we stay have, or is it gone? We have said that we will continue with the Canada Child Benefit. We'll continue to make sure that it is tax-free, just like the Liberals did. We had introduced programs that were universal like that before, and we'll continue doing that. But at the end of the day, it's affordability for families. So we can talk about all the money being invested, but families can't afford things because we have seen under this government such increases in spending, such increases in taxes, and at the end of the day, families are going without because of some of the mismanagement of our public accounts. Angela, quick final review. Sure. You get a bigger bang for your buck if you provide recreation centers and recreation programs more affordably than if you give tax breaks to people that could afford to shell out the money in the first place. The reason we don't have a child care system is not because the Liberal plan failed, it's because they failed us. They didn't put the money into the system that they promised. If they had, I wouldn't have waited three years to get my daughter into a child care right. spot on a wait list. We'll, we'll have to leave it at that. Thank you all. Karen Vecchio, Angela McEwen, and Mona Forte. Thank you very much. And as I say to all, all candidates, uh, good luck. Thank you. And, uh, we'll talk See you to you again. Take care. Days. <laughs> Take care. Okay. Thank you all. Bye. Bye. Well, let's get another snapshot of the campaign by the numbers. David Coletto is the CEO of Abacus Data and will be joining us regularly throughout the campaign to give us perspective on polls, including his own, but not just his own. David, good to see you again. See Thanks you. for being here. Uh, you've got some numbers that we want to talk about tonight. Uh, about what public opinion is, t is telling us uh, as we get into the campaign now. Uh, so let's start there. Tell me what we're dealing with, a little bit of the methodology. Yeah, so, so our survey, we're going to talk about our numbers. We'll also talk about some of the other polls that have come out since, was done entirely before the, the election was called. So right. we, we interviewed uh, 2,000 Canadians from uh, September 6th to the 10th. And so uh, it's a snapshot of where we were the moment this campaign started. 
But as we've seen from some of the more recent polls uh, yeah, that have been out since, with, yeah. not, not much has changed in the first few days of the campaign. I think we would expect that, you know, Canadians are warming up to the election and they're not going to just turn it on overnight. Right. So this gives us really interesting numbers here about what people are thinking. We're four or five, six days in now, I guess, uh, even what people are thinking as they start to consider choices. So let's go through some of them. Want to start with the horse race. Uh, We don't want to just talk about the horse race, but it's good to establish where we are in the landscape. And and your numbers here line up with the other polls we're seeing. Yeah, there's actually a pretty clear, more or less consensus on the national numbers that most of the polling firms are showing that shows we're basically tied. We had the Conservatives two points ahead of the Liberals, 35 uh, to 33. Um, Again, Nanos was out this morning with the 34-34. So that that lead for the Conservatives is is within the margin of error. And so uh, this looks very much like the race we've we've actually measured over the last few months, that that we're at a stalemate um, and and, uh, as this campaign begins. Let's uh, break it down. Uh, When you look at the numbers by region, what do you see? Well, here we start to see some unique uh, and interesting dynamics, right? We know that the Conservatives are doing very well in Alberta, uh, in, in Saskatchewan in particular, also doing well in Manitoba, and they're running up big numbers there. Um, on the other side, the Liberals are doing well in Atlantic Canada. For a moment there earlier this year, those numbers had come together, but most of the polls now, now point to a fairly healthy Liberal lead in Atlantic Canada, as in Quebec, where the Liberals hold um, a double-digit lead over the Conservatives. But all eyes are also going to be on the, the places where there's less consensus among the polls. Ontario, we've got it more or less tied. Some polls have a big Liberal lead in Ontario. Some are showing it a closer race. Right. And then in British Columbia, same kind of story. Um, some polls show the Conservatives slightly ahead, some even largely ahead, but we've got them basically tied. So Ontario, uh, BC, Quebec, these are going to be obviously the key battlegrounds, but the Liberals seem to have a, a nice advantage because of these regional splits right now. They'd likely win more seats if, if these numbers hold to election. Right. I think it's re- really interesting as, as you look through the numbers, too, is to, is to see where other parties are faring. And I think because you know, a lot of these, Ontario, BC, and Quebec will be the subject of, uh, in some cases, two- and three-way, four-way races, right? right? So how the other parties, parties are doing in those battleground ridings has a big effect. It does. And we've seen, you know, in some of these regions, some slow decline in the NDP and Green Party numbers. That's a big question. Add those two together, and that gives us a signal to how much left of the electorate the Liberals and Conservatives might be fighting for. If we do see what some, I think what the Liberals are hoping will happen, is a polarization, a a sort of consolidating that progressive vote, then those NDP Green numbers will continue to go down. They're holding right now. Again, as you said at the start, this is first impressions. But people are, are very open-minded. What happens when you break the support of the four of the parties down by age? That's well, age is going to be, I think, an important factor, not only in how people vote, but whether they vote at all. Uh, the Conservatives have uh, a nice uh, 12-point lead among those 60 or over. But if you look at all the other age groups, it's, it's pretty tight. Um, the Conservative vote sort of declines as you get younger. The Liberal vote holds steady. Um, you know, among those under the age of 30, all eyes are going to be on these millennials. I'm one of them. Uh, whether they turn out... Uh, again, but you can see the Greens and the New Democrats. If you combine those two numbers together, they do better among younger voters. That's that's a that's a real challenge, I think, for the Liberals uh, as they seek re-election because they need those young voters. Yeah. Kind of interesting in the numbers I look at them too. You, you look at that seniors, uh, you know, NDP. The NDP is the weakest in the in the seniors cohort. Yeah. Even the the NDP is the party at every day talking about protecting pensions, talking about a universal farm and care plan. Although the Greens are talking about that as well. Uh, they're apparently not getting a whole lot of love from that audience that they're spending a lot of time talking to. And I think it's it's partly that 
you know, younger people typically don't vote NDP. Uh, older people, I'm sorry, older Canadians don't typically vote as much for the New Democrats. I also think it has a lot to do with their leader being relatively unknown, and, mm. and we'll, I mean, we'll talk about that in this moment. All right, let's let's move to the leaders and, and how they're being viewed. Let's start with Justin Trudeau. What are what are your poll yeah, numbers? Yeah, well, we're, we're actually seeing a status quo uh, for Mr. Trudeau's personal numbers uh, for the last few months. The starts the campaign basically where he's been, and that is almost half the country view him negatively, but a third view him positively. That's been the, the way basically since uh, February uh, of this year when the SNC-Lavalin controversy kind of re reset the, the people's views of the Prime Minister. Um, and so he starts this election in a very different place than he did four years earlier where people had a kind of a mixed view of the Prime Minister. Now it's more decidedly negative. And what about Andrew Scheer? Well, Andrew Scheer starts in a similar way, maybe less negative than the Prime Minister. More people view him negatively than positively. There's still a lot of people out there. Uh, though, who don't have much opinion about Andrew Scheer. Those, you can see these two lines have gone up over the course of the time he's been leader, but um, there's still a, he's still a blank canvas to a lot of Canadians. And what about Jagmeet Singh? A uh, little bit of change happening there. Yeah, this is one of the few areas where we've actually seen some movement. Um, his, his positives are up four points uh, since the end of August. Um, he's, it's the first time in a long time in which more people view Mr. Singh positively than negatively. This is not a trend, it may be a blip, but I think you know there, there are some accounts that he's had a good start to this campaign, and so as we do more polling, uh, we're going to go on the field Friday, we'll start to see whether uh, these numbers improve for the, the NDP leader. And what about the leader of the Green Party, Elizabeth May? Well, she's, the, she's in, a, in the uh, enviable position as really being the only leader that has you know, a real solid positive uh, perception among Canadians, 33% view her positively, 19 negatively. Um, that's something that I think she's going to be using to try to convince people that they should take a look at the Greens and maybe do something they've not done before, which is vote green. And then you asked about preferred prime minister, and it's kind of it's good to sort of find out what people are thinking uh, as they start to make choices, and in particular for the two men, right? Yeah. Uh, the two men who, for the moment, seem to be the the, the two the two uh, political leaders, Justin Trudeau and Andrew Scheer, have a shot at winning government. Yeah. Well, you know, like the ballot question, this one is very close as well. Although, in this case, Mr. Trudeau's got a slight two-point advantage over Mr. Scheer, uh, but you can see that's basically tied. Elizabeth May, Jagmeet Singh fighting it out for third and fourth, uh, and then Max Bernier's at 5%. So, you know, preferred prime minister is strongly related to your vote choice, which shows the power of leadership and, and that choice in, in driving people's uh, views. And then next what you did was you, you put the two yeah. front-runner choices between them and you sort of canvassed parties, right? So which one of the two do you want? Well, I think conventional wisdom would say most New Democrats and Green Party supporters, for example, would much prefer Mr. Trudeau to Mr. Scheer. That's not necessarily how this thing plays out. In fact, when you ask all people, if you only had the choice between Mr. Trudeau and Mr. Scheer, who would you choose? You can see it's basically split 50-50. The Prime Minister's got a four-point advantage uh, over Mr. Scheer. And as, as you would expect, um, liberals and conservatives, they lean very heavily to their, their leader in right. terms of who they prefer. But look at New Democrats, Green Party supporters, uh, even the bloc. The cons liberals have Mr. Trudeau as a slight advantage, but it is not as, as clear as you might, you might expect, which tells us that politics is not always linear. Just because you're a New Democrat supporter doesn't mean your second choice is always going to be the liberals. Um, and in this case, you're really looking at these two choices, and you might be saying, I don't really like either of them. 
Um, and if I had to choose, maybe I do choose Mr. Scheer. Maybe I do choose change. Yeah. Let's look at uh, the possibility of change here and, and what voters, how, how locked down are the votes as the campaign gets underway? I guess that's the way to put it. Well, the answer is not that much. Um, almost four out of 10 Canadians, or just over four out of 10 Canadians tell us they are either very likely or somewhat likely to change their mind. And this is among people who have a preference right now. Um, and so what we suspect is that over the campaign, this should, this should firm up. But what's interesting is over half of NDP supporters, over half of Green Party supporters, tell us they are likely to change. They are the most open to mm -hmm. persuasion, which, um, again, is, is really what this election seems to be about, is where do those voters go? Do they, do they leave sort of their home right now? Or... Uh, to, to maybe support the Liberals right. or the Conservatives, or do they stay and are um, those parties able to grow and pull in some of the switchers from other parties? Yeah, and that's why you heard, I think you, you heard Elizabeth May again today saying that, look, this is the election where we could end up with a minority parliament. Don't think about strategic voting. Vote for the part, you know, vote for what you want. And right. so that's an effort to counter this, this you know, yeah. uh, certain softness and in, in support that might be prepared to go somewhere else, right? And, and I think these two parties in particular over their history, except in 2011, have always had to deal with this. It's, it's something that, that is a challenge with our system where, you, you, you know, your votes don't always get translated into seats. And if the switchers switch, if I can put it that way, yeah. where are they likely to go? Well, they're going to kind of scatter, right? There's no, there's no, I guess, logic or ration, rational... Uh, choices that that we'd expect, right? Liberals more likely to go to New Democrats uh, and the Greens, but a quarter would go to the Conservatives. Among Conservatives, they split all over the place, right? Again, 22% of Conservative supporters say their second choice is the NDP, not the People's Party or the Liberal Party. So, uh, you know, these these kind of um, these numbers confirm again what I said earlier: politics isn't as linear as we imagine. Even you know, 16% of NDP potential switchers say their second choice is the Conservative. So it means it's messier um, and it's not so, so neatly put together. Let's finish on this uh, next uh, graphic that speaks to a, a campaign that's about four different voter pools. Tell me about Yeah, that. so this is a way I was trying to understand how, how we can really under, like, get a sense of what this campaign is going to be about. And we asked people in the survey, are you open to voting for the main parties? And when I slice and dice that question into different pieces, it basically produces four groups that I think the parties are, are going to be communicating with in different ways. Right. You've got 30% of Canadians who say they would be open to voting Conservative but not Liberal. Now, they're open to other parties, but they would right. not consider mm -hmm. voting Liberal. You've got about the same number who say they are open to voting Liberal but not Conservative. And so these so that's 60% of the electorate that you know will never... Yeah, two sort they, they of isolated gonna, universes, yes. right? Then you've got about one out of five, 20% or so, 19%, who say they'd be open to voting for both the Conservatives and Liberals. Um, and so if this election becomes about, and it's not necessarily going to be about, but if it becomes about which of these two options Canadians would rather be in power, would rather be Prime Minister, mm -hmm. then that 20% becomes really important. Because right now the Liberals have a slight advantage over the Conservatives among that group on how they would vote, but they are much more open to persuasion, much uh, more willing to potentially switch. The last group is the 20% on the outside. They say they would not consider voting for either the Liberals nor the Conservatives. And so that's where you see these fights between the NDP and the Greens. Right. They're going after those voters, those that have counted out the two big ones, um, and now are deciding which one is the best shot at, at you know representation in the House and and 
representing my values. So okay. it's, it's really interesting when you look at it from that perspective. Let's finish on this. So the upshot, where are we day six of the campaign? What, what, what does your information tell us? The rest of the polling information tells what story and kind of a headline? It's telling us that this race is still very, very close. It's, it's almost exactly where we were, I think, um, not only at the start of this campaign, but even a few months before it. Um, I think it's highly volatile, uh, uncertain, and voters are probably now warming up um, and, and starting to think about their choices. And that 20%, that swing vote, um, will be really critical. So um, hence why all these parties are working so hard, because there's a lot of people who haven't made up their mind. David Coletto, as always, thanks for your time. Thanks, Peter. Well, let's bring in our panel of parliamentary journalists now to talk about some of the day's events. Susan Delacourt is a columnist and Ottawa bureau chief for the Toronto Star. Joel Denis Bellavance is the parliamentary bureau chief for La Presse. And Christy Kirkup is a national affairs reporter with the Globe and Mail. Good to see you all. Thanks for being here. So Max Bernier's in. Uh, he was out, now he's in. The Debates Commission uh, saying, in fact, he's meeting the criteria. They think he has a chance to win in some seats. So he's, he's going to be back in the two leaders' debates. Has the commission got it right? Well, I'm, I'm going to declare a tiny bit of a conflict because I'm a bit of a moderator, so I'm just going to deflect that question, if you don't mind, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and say that I found the, the, um, the ruling kind of interesting because Maxime Bernier had to supply to the commission a list of five ridings where he thought he would be competitive. And then they went out and did research into those five ridings. The commission actually went and polled in the ridings right. to see... And that was fascinating. Um... Two of them are in the GTA, uh, Pickering and um, Etobicoke North, right. which is sort of home of Ford Nation. Ford Nation. Exactly. And then uh, Nipissing was another one. I'm not going to be able to name them all now because yeah. I forgot. But uh, the, the ruling in detail is almost as interesting as the decision itself, is uh, that for whatever reason, Maxime Bernier has put himself on the map in this campaign. We see that he's definitely present on social media. And I will say just, uh, I'm in favor of all kinds of debates and the more the merrier. I'm, you know, uh, I, I think we as journalists always want more discussion, not less. Right, Joel, then what do you think? I was expecting uh, that the uh, first no would remain no, uh, because I, uh, according to what I'd seen before, that he didn't meet those criteria. But I guess the polls that were conducted, I think, were sufficient enough to convince the commission to reverse its decision. But I uh, saw Maxime Bernier a couple of weeks ago, or last week, and he confidently told me that the commission would reverse its decision. I was skeptical then. And now I'm forced to <laughs> be proven wrong. Psychic. Yeah. Of, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and and uh, that means that uh, Maxime Bernier has a chance to make sure that his party survive at least until the end of this election because he was falling into uh, almost anonymity in Quebec at least. Uh, we're not talking much about his policies. We're talking more about the other parties, the main parties won this race. Now he'll have a chance to uh, steal the show maybe and, yeah, well, and score some points. Christy, how does his presence at the debate change the debates? I mean, we haven't had them yet, of course, but he's. everybody knows what Max Bernier has been saying and it's going to be offside with a lot of the other candidates on that stage. 
Yeah, I think that uh, it's fair to say that he has been a bit of a pot stirrer in the past, and he, I think, will come to the debate looking to stir the pot. Um, and I think that it will be really interesting to see how the other parties respond uh, to the change dynamic with him being part of the debate, specifically Conservative leader Andrew Scheer. Of course, uh, Scheer and uh, Bernier have quite the history when they were going up against each other to actually lead the Conservative Party, and now Andrew Scheer can't ignore his presence. Uh, and again, we, we don't know uh, about uh, the reach of the People's Party and whether or not uh, their support will translate in terms of seats. Uh, but Scheer's going to have to deal with that. It's not just, um, you know, the straight target of going after Justin Trudeau right, in the and, debate. And we know he's not happy. Uh, he put out a statement today. It's no big surprise from Andrew Scheer. The Justin Trudeau's hand-picked debate panel used a liberal-friendly pollster who attacks Andrew Scheer to ultimately justify Mr. Bernier's attendance at the debate. Uh, I, that, I think that's regrettable. Um, it's, rather than attack the debates, it's, uh, it's better to sort of attack but, your opponent. Yeah, yeah, anyway, but, he also pointed out that there's no, no, never, there hasn't been a, a, a party in this country with 3% popular support win a seat in an election, in a federal election since 1949, I think the Conservatives wrote. Uh, what do you make of that? Well, there, those attacks, I think, were... Uh, as, as uh, Susan mentioned, regrettable because it, it's sort of attacking the legitimacy of the commission and this was put together to sort of take out the uh, uh, organization of the debates out of the political parties. Now, remember though, the first debate that will take place that Justin Trudeau will take part in will be the TVA debate and Mr. Bernier will not be invited to that one and that's a French debate and so that debate may uh, set the tone for the two other debates that will take place the following week. So I will be watching that one also very closely as to what impact, if already, Mr. Maxime Bernier's participation will have in that debate, whether they'll mention their name or mention some of his policies. The uh, Green Party unveiled its its platform today, Christy, with, uh, of course, a big focus on climate change and the environment. What we haven't seen yet is a costing that's coming. Uh, uh, what do we make of what we saw from the Greens? Clearly, they're out there to try and say we're more than the climate change party, and they have all these other free tuition, all kinds of stuff. Uh, what do you think the play is here from Elizabeth May? Um, I think that uh, there definitely is an effort uh, to try and target uh, people who might be uh, looking at the NDP and wondering whether or not people should actually take them uh, as seriously as previous campaigns. Uh, if you look at the uh, proposals that are contained within the platform, a heavy focus on uh, Indigenous peoples, of reconciliation with Indigenous peoples, uh, looking at, again, a, a livable income, uh, as you mentioned, free tuition, a really strong focus on social policy within the platform and again we without the the costing numbers we're not sure how this is all going to shake out today she specifically said she's not trying to target the NDP um, but we have seen and I think this has actually been an interesting story in this campaign this rivalry and we saw it at play in the McLean's debate as well where May and Jagmeet Singh were way more confrontational than they ever really have been before going at each other about you know again Elizabeth May suggests that the NDP is not going to actually be able to to cost out uh, their uh, policy proposals. So um, I actually think that uh, the, the platform in, in many regards is heavy on policy, social policy, and that seems directed towards picking up progressive voters. Um, what do you think, Susan? I, I thought one of the most interesting things she said today was when she was talking about, first of all, she, nobody runs for prime minister. She was giving a little right. political How science Canadian lesson. elections work. <laughs> That's right, yes. But uh, she was saying, uh, she said, I'm not going to win. I'm not going to be prime minister chances are 
and uh, I want to be the conscience of Parliament. As Christy said, Wait yes. a minute, that's the NDP, isn't it? Exactly, mm -hmm. and she said, I want to be what the NDP used to be. Mm -hmm. So it was in the most gentle way possible. She said, if you want to elect, that, that the NDP did great things, Medicare, the flag, all those things happened when there was an NDP minority in Parliament. But now, was the flag part of that? Anyway, I'm not going to fact check Elizabeth May here, but, um, but what she did say very gently was that she is running to be the conscience of Parliament in a minority Parliament. And that, I, I can actually see people leaning back and saying, that sounds not bad. Right. I can see a pattern there with the Green Party. The, the, their platform on the environment is appealing to the youth. Now, offering free tuition fees will also appeal to those people and may mobilize enough youth to vote for them and that may make a difference in some ridings where uh, the youth is sufficient numbers. Because talking to my daughter, I want to give this anecdotal evidence. She goes to Cégep in Quebec and all of her friends who are there plan to vote for Green, even though they don't know much about the platform. They don't want to vote Green because there is a strong element associated with uh, environment and the Green Party. So now the tuition fees may bring another load of uh, supporters and those people are easy to mobilize, I think. If they know that there is something in it for them, it might be the tipping point for them to vote for Green Party. That's, a, that's a, an interesting point you've raised too, right? Because the, the party, uh, it, it may be reasonable, reasonable to assume that the, the, the party popular support may actually be ahead of the party's ability to translate it into votes, right? Yeah. 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 Like the ground game yeah. is you have all the, to your case, if you have all these people, yeah, we think we're going to go green, then the next, well, how do we do it? Where do we go? Yeah. Who's the candidate and all that stuff? And that's where a ground game and a party, you know, machi machinery pitches in, right? Exactly. And I think it's, you watch this, uh, this, this, well, I want to be the conscious, uh, conscience of parliament. The, is that the first, is that one of the steps along the way of this other narrative she's playing, which is vote the way you want? Mm -hmm. Like, don't be, if we're going to have a minority parliament, like, it's, it's fine to vote for the party you want to vote for. Don't be worried about who's going to win and who's going to come second and how tight it's going to be. This is the election to vote for who you want. I mean, she's really playing that up. Yeah, and I think that, again, you know, according to public opinion polls and a number of public opinion polls, there are a lot of people who are shopping around right now mm -hmm. to figure yeah. out where they're going to go. And so I think that that message seems to be directed at those who are undecided uh, to say, you know, maybe this time around you can actually vote the way that yeah, you want to. Yeah, we heard from David Coletto earlier in our program. There's a, there's a pool of voters out there that uh, will not vote for Andrew Scheer or Justin Trudeau. And yeah. that, that's the... That's the that's sort of the fertile ground for both Greens and New Democrats to try and, and win those people over. I mean, it's a... I, I found that finding really interesting and about polarization in Canada, too. Like, we are seeing that second choice is evaporating, and that's what happened in the United States as well. You know, people just don't have a second choice. Right. You know, you have to... You're either on one side or the other, and I... I, I really see echoes of that in uh, that Coletto finding. Let's talk about the uh, Liberals and Conservatives today. Justin Trudeau was announcing more childcare money, $532 million more a year for pre preschool programs and after school programs for kids under 10 uh, to help offset the fees of those programs for parents. And Andrew Scheer is re-announcing, re-promising, promising, I'm sure it's like promising to re repromising <laughs> the uh, all, all the Harper area tax cuts era tax cuts basically are coming back with Andrew Shear. Um, like, what does I, that tell does that, that say they're on, they knew it was good and popular and so let's why would we not or 
that's the extent of our pro pro program. I mean. You could say that those two parties are into this recycling <laughs> business <laughs> because uh, the Liberals have been promising help for childcare for many years, yeah. if not many decades, and with limited success because they need the cooperation of the provinces. And in this case, too, they will need the cooperation of, of Doug Ford, uh, 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 for example, or other premiers. So and it seems to me, in watching the prime minister, today, like he knows that. Clearly, he knows, he knows that, that. Yeah. and he was yeah. prepared to say but that it's and ready for the question about, hey, Doug Ford's going to put roadblocks up in your way, and he made a point of saying, that's the thing the voters have to think about. There's yeah. that kind of thing you want from Doug Ford or the kind of thing we're talking about. And Basically it, the role of government. And it, it allowed him to bring back Doug Ford into the national conversation, which is not helping necessarily Andrew Scheer in, in, in Ontario. As for Andrew Scheer, I mean, those taxes had popular appeal, I think, uh, to, to some point, but I think it was limited. And they still feel that it's the best way to give back money. But for a person with limited revenues, you still have to spend the money to get that tax right, credit. And right. so... Uh, people who are expert in fiscal policy say this is not the best way to help people. It, it, do, it does raise the, I mean, it, it really, I think, as I'm watching it, it does bring sharper focus to the choices, right? Yeah. You know, people are best, give them back money by way of tax cuts or credits, let them decide what to do with it, and then the argument around government intervention. What is the yeah. role of government? Yeah. I think, though, they are driven by the same fundamental issue, which, of course, we know is going to be a central issue, or if not a top issue in this campaign, which is affordability. And mm -hmm. the fact that even, again, middle-class families, there are people, um, you know, we, we see that, you know, Justin Trudeau has talked about the middle class and those working hard to join it. In fact, the research suggests that, um, you know, the working poor, if you will, that that segment of the population is getting bigger, that people really are struggling with things like housing, like paying for yeah. childcare. Um, Basic I, affordability issues. Yeah. I can tell you I pay a huge a, a mortgage payment in childcare every month. It is a huge policy issue that really strikes at the, the cord of what a lot of people are dealing with. And then this is interesting what she says because that kind of policies have limited appeal in Quebec because Quebec has already have got its own it, plan. Yeah, so yeah. Mr. Trudeau is sort of uh, appealing to more Ontario voters and West when he makes that kind of proposal because in Quebec we've had daycare like a funded daycare program for the last 20 years. But it, but you are right. It's it's a fundamental ideological divide, and I think it it hasn't shaped up in the campaign yet. But you see it in, even in the in the slogans for the parties. It's yeah. time for you, the individual, to get ahead. Conservatives mm -hmm. are very much about appealing. If, if people were just left to their own devices, things would run fine. The Liberals are more, you need government there to back you up. So Choose Forward is about a government, and the slogan for the Conservatives is, it's about you getting ahead. They're both about directional movement, but one is individual, one is the group. Let's finish on this. The, uh, we saw from David Coletto, from other pollsters as well, now six days in, and it's still relatively early, but the polls kind of reflect what we saw for several months leading up to the vote almost. And I, I think, do you, are you surprised we're seeing no separation at the top between the two leaders? And what, what's it going to take? Well, the ballot Or question, maybe it won't. No. The ballot questions and the debate, I think, will have a big influence over those numbers will move in one direction or the other. But I guess to um, Susan's point, I think it shows that we're maybe getting more and more polarized in this country as to the, the best option to govern the country. And it shows with the close race that we're seeing. And also regional differences. Uh, the Liberals are popular in Quebec and are ahead in, in Ontario, but the Tories are very strong in the West. So there's a regional divide that will 
you know, um, but, but will have to be dealt with with whoever is elected. That's the word. Uh, yeah, yeah, but then we have the, the, the mechanics of our system are such that, I mean, we talk about the polarization, but that it, would, it seems to me that if you're, you know, not not everybody wants the polarization. If you're the conservatives, do you want, you want maybe the message polarization, but if polarization comes down to conservatives and it's largely the others lined up on the other side, and you want, if you're a conservative, don't you want all of them to do reasonably well because you split yes. all those votes, right? Uh, yes. And that's yeah. a challenge. Yeah. Yeah. And, and by the way, the Conservative Party was uh, very happy that Jagmeet Singh had a good performance at the televised debate on Mc, uh, organized by McLean's and uh, CTTV. They hope that he does continue on that on that note to split the vote you know, on, yeah, on the left. Yeah. If, only, yeah. if yeah. only somebody promised electoral reform like that. <laughs> Sorry, wrong election. Yeah. Yes, wrong election. Elizabeth May is promising it again. Yeah. Uh, she said it was a massive betrayal. It's not just a broken yes, promise. Yes, she said that that's betrayal. a number of times, though. It wasn't yep. just a broken promise, a massive betrayal. All right, um, we're out of time. Thank you all. We'll talk again. Thank you, Peter. That's all for this campaign edition, day six of the election campaign, Vote 2019 on CPAC. I'm Peter Van Dusen. Thanks for watching. More coverage of the campaign coming up. <laughs>